Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar, climate change turned up the heat this summer, literally baking the earth. The sweltering temperatures in August and September were the hottest on record since 1880. Meanwhile, two local significant efforts to fight climate change. In a first-of-its-kind agreement, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut are teaming up to develop offshore wind farms. Plus, an $11 million grant will help Boston expand its tree canopy, especially in areas where trees are scarce. That and more on our Environmental News Roundtable. Later in the show, more than 30 days left in the World Cup cricket tournament, and excited fans all around the world are glued to the televised matches. Just this past summer, Major League Cricket debuted in the United States as the number of greater Boston cricket teams has more than doubled. The love and the passion for the game is is actually just manifesting itself. And as more opportunities come about, you see more and more people trying to play the game. What's behind America's newfound love for this old world sport? But first, joining me now, Dr. Gaurav Basu, Director of Education and Policy at the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Hi, Gaurav. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Also with me, Beth Daly, Executive Editor and General Manager of The Conversation U.S. Welcome, Beth. Thanks for having me back, Callie. And Sam Payne, Digital Development Manager and Communication Specialist for Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thank you for having me, Callie. All right. Well, I want to take us way back to two months ago um, when we were sweltering. Hard to think about it now as these cooler temperatures and rainy temperatures have been with us for a few days. But it was just incredibly hot. And now we find out it was not our imagination. Um, August and September, hottest on record since they began recording uh, these rates in 1880. I like a quote from the climate scientist Zeke Hosfeather, and he called it gobsmackingly bananas. So I'll talk with you. I'll start with you, Gorob. The heat. Um, the ridiculously hottest on record heat. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to those descriptors the word dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous for our health. Um, it's obviously of great concern. This was a very hard summer. Um, this is driven by climate change. Uh, the, the, the trajectories are clear here. Um, there's also a very strong El Nino at play. Um, and so I'm trying to follow this. I follow Zeke's work pretty closely. I think climate scientists are trying to understand uh, what happened this summer. And, and honestly, September was even more concerning, even though in September, October, we start feeling less, you know, severe heat. The uh, anomaly of heat has was the highest it's ever been in September. So I'm looking at these graphs. It's kind of going off the charts of what we've seen before. Uh, again, I'm thinking about my patients first and, for, uh, first and foremost. Um, I think we're going to have to get used to these erratic 
um, extreme unpredictable scenarios more and more. Um, we also have to just keep focus that we have to stop burning fossil fuels. That's our work. We also, there was a headline today saying that we might peak in global emissions this year and start decreasing. So the urgency is clear and we need to move forward with haste. Um, Beth Daly, The Conversation U.S. Um, uh, offered a piece, six reasons why global temperatures are spiking right now. One of them, I'll note, was bad luck. But there are some others, other uh, uh, specific uh, factors that the article pointed to. Yeah, yeah. So climate change is the... Um, the scientists uh, uh, concurred, it, it's fairly obvious at this point, is sort of the foundational reason why temperatures are increasing. But we had a series of other things that that played a part um, in various parts of the world. Um, obviously, El Nino was was one of them. Um, uh, but also, uh, there was a, a, a huge uh, uh, underwater volcano eruption, uh, if people remember, um, back in January of 2022. Um, that sent huge amounts of water vapor high up in the upper atmosphere. And um, so even though it happened two years ago, it still has a small warming effect on the planet, um, sort of because water vapor is a greenhouse gas, so it's trapping. Um, so that that was a, a small um, part of the reason. We've also had increased solar activity, um, and that's just simply variable. There's different solar cycles. Um um, and the sun is becoming more active um, now compared to a few years ago. It's also that's contributing again a small amount to the spike in global temperatures, um, but it's really only a hundredth of a degree at most for the recent global heat. But but I think the story really tried to explain that climate change is the main driver, but there's all these added on effects that had the result of really pushing us into the upper echelon of of heat, and that's always going to be the case. There'll always be local effects and other effects. That will pile on or decrease, um, and I do want to say just how dangerous it is. That's an apt word. Uh, the, the 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 heat. I mean, we're trying to get a grasp on heat deaths around the world right now, and it's obviously growing, um, and it's going to grow some more. Sam, I think we're slowly, and when I say we, I mean generally Americans understanding uh, heat to be as dangerous as cold has been for a lot of people, but it's still. There's still a transition. I, I, I think people are still shocked um, that it can get to the point of being deadly as it has been. Um, you know, it was the summer before, but certainly this summer went with the records went off the charts. Yeah, you know, people are really feeling the heat right now. It's very hard to ignore the climate crisis when it's a, an, a whole week of 90 degree days in uh, late August. Uh, and I think this is really contributing to people's climate anxiety, but I'm trying to stay hopeful uh, that this will contribute towards us taking some serious action. And that can't just be uh, mitigation. We also have to be helping people uh, all across the country and all around the world uh, to be able to withstand these increasing temperatures. I was fascinated by uh, something that Boston is a part of, just there's a few cities doing it. Um, this is a solution, very small, but, you know, every little bit helps. Uh, the use of this paint called Cool Seal, which um, helps reduce the heat. It's specifically there to combat combat the rising heat in the cities. And as we've all said, now you have those high temperatures, and it's uh, re literally baking us to death in some instances. What do you all think about this Cool Seal um, and the fact that Boston is a part of this 
this, I don't know if it's an experiment, but a project to see uh, just how effective it can be. I'll start with you, Gaurav. Yeah, you know, we're going to have to get creative. And I agree with what Sam said about adaptation. Um, you know, we've got to do the first things first and stop burning fossil fuels. But um, we're going to need some new solutions. Um, and, and you know, some of my colleagues at the School of Public Health are, are talking about cool surfaces, you know, how, you know, if we painted our roads uh, white, that would impact, you know, the, the amount of heat we're having at um, the surface temperatures. So I think it's all in here and we've got to be creative, but we, we can't bandage these things without stopping the drivers of what is causing this in the first place. Now, to be clear, Beth, uh, the paint at its most effective is, is just uh, 10 degrees cooler than asphalt, but that could be a lot um, at any given point in really high temperatures. Oh yeah, I mean, I think I mean the EPA is is um, really said this this is a a, a potential solution or a solution. Um, you know, it was really interesting. Uh, Arizona State University professors had done a a, a a program where they, I think they had um, put this this product Cool Seal to about thirty six miles of roads and a parking lot, um, and they had found that it this this reflective pavement um, really. Uh, lowered the average surface temperature. And, and that was as high as I think 10 to 12 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's that's a lot, you know? Um, so it seems it's a very creative solution um, that doesn't seem it may be high cost. And you're seeing this around the world too with, um, you know, painting white on top of uh, buildings and whatnot. It's it's one piece of the solution. It's pretty exciting. It's interesting to me, Sam, that the this heat, uh, this paint rather, is not, white it's gray actually in color so it's got some st special stuff in it obviously this is uh no small matter asphalt holds a lot of heat and it lets the heat off overnight as well making it difficult for uh, urban heat islands to cool down properly so this could actually have a, a pretty major effect especially on the communities that are feeling heat the most right now and those communities uh, often are the ones with no trees or very few trees or young trees uh, go through the spectrum. But those shaded communities with those old trees, with all of those leaves, really are much, much cooler, as has been demonstrated uh, over and over. In fact, Roxbury, uh, at one point, and may still be, was acknowledged as a uh, heat island uh, because of the lack of trees. And you all know that there was has been an ongoing fight about not removing the trees around Melnia Cass Boulevard. Uh, but there's good news. Again, we're looking at some solutions. Often this conversation is, seems very depressing. Uh, Boston has just gotten an $11 million grant to enhance the tree canopy, and it's specific to development in urban and community forestry. Um, and Beth, I think that's uh, pretty exciting. You know, trees, again, are one part of the solution, but they provide so many other benefits. Um they provide mental health benefits. They provide, um, uh, you know, water, runoff help. Um, and so trying to figure that out is, is, and plant more trees in these places that don't have a lot, I think is critical. And the thing that I worry about is the maintenance of trees in urban areas. Um, so it's a very positive thing, but I always remember when, um, the late great uh, Mayor Menino had had pledged to plant, um, I think it was like a million trees. Right. Um, and that didn't really pan out. Um, 
in part because of the difficulty in, in, in doing so on public lands. Most of the trees in Boston are on private lands and um, the maintenance of them as well. And so I hope I hope there's money built in for that. And it seems like there is. So it's a great, it, it is a good thing. I'm just always, um, you know, the cynical journalist to make sure it actually works out. Well, no, no, I think uh, you raise an important point, uh, Sam, because this specifically says they're uh, focusing on the urban forest and heat resilient solution. So right away, that those are those communities that, that are, most in desperate need of some shade. Um, before you comment, Sam, let me uh, let us all take a listen to Senator Ed Markey. This is something that he had been championing along with Mayor uh, Michelle Wu, uh, and he was here. He is celebrating the eleven million dollar grant for Boston's tree canopy. This funding will bring shade and solutions to the neighborhoods that need them the most. From scorching heat to cool shade, this funding can make our shining city on a hill uh, into a shaded city that keeps us safe. On his face, you know, it seems so simple, Sam. You know, have some more trees and maintain the ones that are there. Yeah, and you know, a lot of the time, simple solutions work. As Beth mentioned, uh, trees have a tremendous amount of positive effects on the community. They help keep residents cool. They absorb pollutants. And they even have a measurable uh, lowering effect on residents' blood pressure. Uh, not to mention just that they look nice and people prefer to live in communities that have trees. And uh, I'm really happy to see the city of Boston recognizing this and especially recognizing the huge environmental justice component here. Like across the country, redline communities run a few degrees hotter. And uh, this is in due in large part to uh, lack of tree canopy coverage. Um, Gaurav, this is federal funding. And so I'm thinking about Beth's comment that I hope it's maintained. Uh, I would hope that after the trees are in place that there's some mechanism by which to do that as well. But in the interim, um, you know, they're they're talking about so many more trees and, and such a broad expansion that you just can't help but be excited about it because this is, if it all does what it's supposed to do, this is amazing. Yeah, Kai, I think this is really important. I, I will tell you, I, I, you know, I go running a lot and I have a, a practice now. I live in Cambridge. The city of Cambridge gets a lot of emails from me during my run on, from my phone saying, hey, there's a tree that needs some tending to, or hey, how about here? There could be a good place for new trees. So um, now that there's some funding, I'm going to not shy away from this. But I, I think trees are a big deal for everything that uh, Beth and Sam said. Um, it really is a health intervention. Um, I'll add to the list of benefits that have been listed already that studies have shown that, you know, urban heat, extreme heat can increase gun violence um, in communities. And um, furthermore, uh, my colleague John Jay at VU School of Public Health has shown that um, um, adding tree canopies can actually decrease uh, gun violence at a, at a community level interventions. So, um, I, you know, I think that creating green spaces, trees, and also parks um, changes our relationship to um, our communities. This is impacting people's day-to-day -day lives, um, and it's it it can be a quiet force in the background, um, promoting health and well-being, uh, and changing our our desire to be in these open spaces. And um, not to mention all the biodiversity, um, and really echo what Sam said about redlining. There was a study showing that redline communities. Or 2.6 degrees Celsius hotter, which is a lot than non-redlighting communities, and and the lack of investments in in um, in green space is a big part of that. 
Now, Gorb, I know you have been um, interested in what would be some concrete results in terms of looking at climate or improving uh, spaces in this way uh, through the Inflation Reduction Act. And I just wanted to point out that this is from the Inflation Reduction Act through the Forest Service. Yeah. Um, uh, and so this is a this is an example of what can happen. Can't say about everything, but but this is some significant money from from that bill. Yeah. No, I think it's really important. And this is you know that like we I, I think in let's not get lost um, you know in some of these challenging headlines that we know what to do. You know, we've got solutions at hand ready to to implement. And there's, you know, funding and staffing and longitudinality to make sure these play out properly. Uh, that's a very real and appropriate thing to be monitoring, as Beth mentioned. But we, we've got a lot of potent solutions at hand, and it's time to just get going and plant these trees and implement these solutions. Now, what's interesting is, uh, and that this for me got a lot less attention, though it's uh, quite significant funding, uh, uh, Governor Healy, um, announced a $1.3 million grant to support tree plantings in gateway cities across Massachusetts. So the $11 million grant, that's Greater Boston. But this is in gateway cities which go across the state, which is very important as well. That's a significant amount of money as well. And um, there's a quote from the governor saying she got her hands dirty in Malden planting trees. And she saw firsthand the tremendous benefits the greening the, greening the Gateway Cities program has on communities. So this is from a partnership between the Executive Office of Engin Energy and Environmental Affairs, um, as you, as all of you know, and I'll start with you, Sam, on this, um, a lot of people have been drilling down on Governor Healy about uh, keeping to her promises with regard to uh, environmental concerns, and this would seem to be part of a response. What say you? Yeah, you know, I think it's very important that uh, we're investing in communities outside of Boston. I think especially in Massachusetts, of course, it's easy to focus on uh, Boston for all of our solutions, but that is less than half of our population. And, uh, you know, I'm still very much awaiting uh, to see Governor Healy's uh, full impact on climate change. I think she did a lot as uh, attorneys general, and uh, we're excited to see what's to come. And uh, this can play a, a small but significant part in that. So, Beth, I mentioned uh, Malden by name, but it, this also includes the city of Everett, Fall River, Fitchburg, Haverhill, Holyoke, Quincy, um, Salem, and uh, Lawrence. So that's significant, and it's it's uh, and they're not little drops of money. There's it looks like almost a hundred thousand dollars in each of those communities. Yeah, you can you can really you can plant a lot of trees for that kind of money. <laughs> you know, the list is long. It's in these. These gateway cities, which tend to have lower tree canopy, older housing stock, you know, um, um, and a large rental population. So there's, I think there's, there's, there's even more than the number that you listed. But I think, I don't know, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it's great not to be focused only on Boston. All these other cities sometimes don't get the attention that Boston does. And places from Holyoke to Haverhill to, you know, Malden and Taunton, Need need trees um, to, for the same reasons um, that we talked about heat islands, uh, mental health, everything. Gaurav, are in the cities? Are is the disparity greater? I mean, the gateway cities typically are disadvantaged communities, so we're talking about communities that are in need as well. But I 
I don't know if it's fair to do a comparison. I was just trying to see, uh, have a sense of, you know, what the impact will be on compared to what it will be in an urban setting. Well, I, I think, you know, each community needs to be assessed for all these things that we're talking about. You know, if we um, lower income communities, um, the, the housing stock is not as good and that can cause heating, you know, inside, you know, the, the buildings in a disproportionate way, the lack of uh, funding, we should be assessing kind of the historical um, investments in communities and, and which communities have lacked those. Um, and prioritize those. And I think there's plenty of places intervene, both in urban setting and settings and um, and these gateway um, cities as well. But we need to do that. I mean, this is, again, climate solutions have the opportunity to improve a bunch of things at once. That's its promise. I guess my point is that, you know, it's got to be all of the above of, of finding all these communities and responding with heat resilience. Um, but we can be doing it in a strategic way in which places that have been um, least uh, supported, um, get some prioritization of, of these uh, in investments. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Dr. Gorup Basu, Director of Education and Policy at the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Beth Daly, Executive Editor and General Manager of The Conversation U.S., and Sam Payne, Communication Specialist for The Better Future Project. We're discussing the latest environmental news. Uh, let me move on to this, what's being described as a first-of-its-kind agreement between Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Um, they each individually have been bidding to get these wind farms going, it seems, um, Sam, that the the failure has been that they didn't have the financing or couldn't get the financing. But now we have a plan that together would seem to be work very well in developing more wind farms. Yeah, you know, taking on the climate crisis is not something Massachusetts can do alone in a vacuum. So it's really great to see uh, Governor Healy working with Rhode Island and Connecticut to advance wind in New England. And I know we've been plagued by so many problems with our uh, ongoing wind projects. And because of that, our rate of electricity coming from wind has barely climbed at all over the last decade. So I think now more than ever, it's important that we invest in wind and to a large scale degree. And I hope that this is able to uh, attract the right contractors that we need to make it happen. So these are the early days, Beth, but how would you characterize this? Some, I've described it as first of its kind, as some have said, but that this, I guess this is not happening anywhere else in the country then. I think for me, it's uh, uh, it's, it's an about about time kind of announcement. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's smart. Um, market power is critical in, um, in, in getting contracts. Um, New England has, has small states. Um, so I like this idea of banding together. And because it's new, um, Gora, there's an opportunity. We don't know if it'll happen, but there is an opportunity to um, have best practices and how it's set up to begin with. There's no reason to believe we can't have long-term success, but we've got to get past these turbulent moments and supply chains and inflation, et cetera. Um, and creating that market power sounds just right. And I, I think it's it's a case study of saying, how do you unstick things? You know, this is going to keep happening across the board, whether it's EVs or clean energy or, you know, building solutions. We're going to keep running into challenges 
And I think what I feel encouraged about, and, and Beth's probably right, that it's about time, but like, we've got to keep saying, well, then how do we overcome um, these obstacles? And, you know, I think in, in the regional stuff, I mean, there, you know, states can be competitive and want, you know, the, the job gains to be just in their states and things like that. And so regional cooperation has its challenges and red tape, and we've got to get over that, but it teaches us that we can work together. You know, I think California, Oregon, Washington have um, so shown regional progress, you know, on other fronts as well, and, and there's good case studies. And then, of course, we're going to have to really work on big things like transmission lines um, um, and, and, you know, interstate infrastructure in those ways. So these are all kind of case, run, you know, practice runs at um, how states work together to tackle big solutions. And um, um, I'm hopeful this is uh, progress. Now, this is all a part of renewable energy, and I just note that the Environment Massachusetts Research and Policy Center um, sent out a release uh, this past week uh, talking about how solar has grown ninefold over the past de decade. Um, they also, here's another interesting statistic, in tw 2022, Massachusetts produced the equivalent of 10% of the electricity it consumes from solar, wind, and geothermal power. And that's compared with 1.2% in 2013. Um, Sam, this is uh, your wheelhouse. What, what's, how do you respond to this uh, new information? Sure. Well, it's certainly moving in the right direction, although uh, we would certainly love to see it move uh, faster. That 1% to 9% is massive. Getting uh, the systems going in the state is huge and that should not be overlooked but i'm really looking forward to the going from nine percent to ninety percent over the next decade because that's so necessary and uh, i think it's important to note that the solar was done in large part through home incentive home incentivization mm. and uh it's going to be harder to do that with wind and it's going to become increasingly harder to do that which i think just in general which i think uh leads us to want to ask for larger scale projects that have uh, the state taking a more direct role oh that's an interesting point because um their notice beth uh points to the fact that the inflation reduction act has provided those incentives that sam is talking about to encourage individuals to buy for example electric vehicles you need a whole lot of electric vehicles to start, you know, making a huge impact. But, you know, that's significant. And those cars are expensive as well. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the more needs to be done and maybe larger scale is probably the best way of doing so. And um, but incentives have to come on all points of the of the spectrum. Gaurab, what say you? Well, I would just say, you know, I, th I think there, there's the incentives, uh, you know, there, there's all these pieces of it. Sometimes I'm a little concerned that we are only focusing on the, you know, the the um, creating the right market um, conditions for this, but we also just need coordination, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you need you need all these things, you know, the, the grid to be getting cleaner, you need batteries, you need, you need a strategic plan of how to um, integrate all these pieces. And by the way, not only to build up the good stuff, but to draw down the bad stuff. And so how do we, you know, just methodically move through and say, we are pulling out the fossil fuel infrastructure um, over time, uh, methodically through here and replacing it with clean energy. So I, I, you listen, I think there's a lot to be encouraged about. Uh, you know, it was just a year ago, the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. We are in a 
time of catalytic change and we've got to keep going. We've got to add new sources, you know, geothermal. There's a lot of great pilots and things like that. So we're, we've got to keep going with the tools we've got, make some new tools, but, um, you, you know, can and I think it's happening, not to say it's not happening, but the kind of strategic vision and coordination, I think, will play an important role. Well, let me squeeze in this. Uh, what scares me to death, I have to say, the flooding and the increase in flooding, which clearly is uh, connected to uh, climate change, as, as uh, scientists have pointed out, and the flash flooding just, just, you know, oh, my God. Um, before I get you all to weigh in on this and, and the increase of it and how we're addressing it, uh, let's take a listen to the mayor of Lemonster, who, as you know, was hit with a massive amount of flooding in his community just about a month ago. I think most should understand in, in our area, if you get, if you get uh, one inch of rain in 24 hours, two inches of rain in 24 hours, that's a lot of rain. We got over nine inches of rain in just a few hours here last night. And you can see some of the devastation. Wiped out the railroad, undermined the uh, railroad tracks, huge sinkholes. There are cars, we've, we've towed hundreds of cars out of uh, you know, flooded areas and, uh, and, and set up two uh, uh, shelters. Um, he was speaking to Fox uh, Weather. Um, Gorb, this is just, a, it's, it's a huge thing here, but it's a small example of what's happening across the country. And it, it appears disparate communities, but the same issue. Yeah, I hear you. You, you said it feels scary, and the, these flash floods are, are are really are scary because you don't you don't even know what's going on, and then suddenly you realize it, it's just kept going. You know, the rain is coming and coming, and it happens very fast. I mean, you know, I, I was caught in a few you know rainfalls this summer where it you know it wasn't a flash flood necessarily, but it, I was struck at how unsafe I was feeling driving and um, didn't know what to do with it. So, I mean, you know, the this is the challenge of climate change is we have a built environment and infrastructure that wasn't made for these extremes. Uh, and that's just the truth. And we've got to build um, uh, an infrastructure that is ready for these events. Beth. I mean, you're totally right. It's scary. And we're in a new reality now. And anyone in New England who's been in the rains gets it. I was driving um, out to Western Mass actually, and an entire swath of Route Two um, by Turner's Falls was 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 wiped out um, from from the from the rain and erosion. Um, and it was really scary because it's like one second it's fine and one second it's not. Um, and we've been focused for a long time on our cities, um, like big cities, handling stormwater runoff, um, combining with sewer you know sewer pipes. And I think what we're seeing is that this is no longer um, just a city issue. It's an issue in every single town, on every single road. Um, and it's, you know, it's an intense, long process to fix. Um, and I don't even know the mechanics of how you fix roads to withstand flash floods, you know, unless there's a lot of bulking up. But um, yeah, I guess to, to be continued. Sam. Yeah, I strongly agree with uh, both of my colleagues here on this. Uh, first of all, yeah, we're seeing the agricultural industry in Western Mass just absolutely devastated by these flash floods. And I don't think we've really found the, the right solution to that. I uh, strongly agree with what Gorab said about the, the need to invest in infrastructure here. Like if we build bridges to withstand three times the weight we can possibly imagine going on them, we should be looking at the rest of our infrastructure in that same way, trying to build in these 
redundancies and take into account how much worse things could get, uh, especially over the next 50, 100 years. I'll put a button on this conversation to say that um, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, announced that already, this is a September report, the country has experienced 23 extreme weather events costing $1 billion or more. So when you think about this flooding, some of the heat, uh, the damage done from the, the extreme heat this summer, this, by the way, passes the previous mark of 22 extreme weather events in in 2020. So it's a lot to think about, and uh, we will continue to have discussions about it with you three. And I uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Callie. Thanks for having me, Callie. My pleasure to be here. Dr. Gora Basu is the Director of Education and Policy at the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Beth Daly is the executive editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S., and Sam Payne is the digital development manager and communication specialist for Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Coming up, cricket is a wildly popular sport throughout much of the world, but not in the United States, at least not yet. With the steeply rising number of local players, leagues, and fans, that could soon change. Helping to boost interest in the game is the new Major Cricket League, which premiered in the U.S. this summer, and the high-stakes rivalries playing out right now in the World Cricket Cup during the next several weeks. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 